You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide. In Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, the labor market seems to be heating up more than double the number of jobs forecast added in July. I will ask Lyft's president about the state of the gig economy as murmurs of a recession get quieter for now. Still, the housing market cooling after rate heights make home buying that much more expensive. How are platforms like Zillow and Redfin reassessing after years of unprecedented demand? Redfin CEO Glenn Kelman also with us this hour. And LinkedIn co-founder Reid Hoffman wants to sell you art created by a computer. He'll tell us what it was like to sell a collection of AI-generated NFTs and what it tells him about the future. We will get to all of that in a moment. But first, for more on list results and the state of the gig economy, I want to bring in John Zimmer, co-founder, vice chair and president of Lyft. John, great to have you back with us. What changed this quarter? It seems like a switch was flipped or, or you shifted into a new gear. Yeah, we had a, we had a great quarter, uh, record high adjusted EBITDA profit for the company. The team did phenomenal work uh, and we really you know, made some adjustments going into the quarter. Uh, but also the business uh, conditions are improving for us. Uh, on the, the driver side, uh, drivers are doing well. They had you know, $37 on average uh, an hour for their earnings uh, and we're much more in balance. So year over year, our ETAs, uh, which is a great uh, level of, uh, or measure of service levels, uh, came down three minutes. So really happy with what we're seeing in the marketplace. We got positive jobs numbers today, kind of a surprise, but I wonder how concerned you still are about the macro environment. We've got inflation, you've still got high gas prices, and you've got a recession looming. Yeah, we, we're, we're watching it obviously closely. I think there are uh, positives and negatives for our marketplace. Um, when you have more people looking for flexible work with good earnings, um, you know, as we're seeing right now, it does help us on the, the driver side of the equation. Uh, and, and riders are still coming back because, you know, we're coming off uh, the, the bottom of a uh, pandemic. 
that really uh, you know affected and hurt our business. And so there's a lot of headroom left, uh, and the driver side of the equation uh, improving is is really nice to see. I spoke to your competition this week. Uh, here's Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi, who said he thinks Uber is a recession-resistant company. Take a listen to what he had to say. Because we're in multiple businesses, both in mobility and delivery, I think we have the kind of business that can perform in all weather. But at the same time, we are being disciplined in terms of costs to make sure that as the environment, if it gets tougher, we are prepared. John, how would you describe Lyft's chances in a recession? Are you any less recession-proof, if you will, because you don't have a delivery part of the business, for example? I think we're in a better position. If you think about, you know, people having less discretionary money to spend, uh, do they spend it on, you know, inflated uh, ordering in food that, that has become inflated, or do they make food for themselves? Um, and actually, we looked back at historical data and transportation is quite durable uh, compared to takeout. So let's talk a little bit about your strategy around costs. You know, Ed was just talking about more layoffs at tech companies. I know you talked a little bit about hiring on the call. What's your strategy when it comes to spending? Are you pulling on the brakes or are you stepping on the gas like Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky told me he's doing earlier this week when it comes to spending for growth and hiring? We're being quite cautious. So we, we really slowed our hiring uh, at the start of the quarter um, and, and at first uh, froze it outright and then only opened up the headcount uh, that we saw as incredibly valuable to our, to our plans to, to drive profitable growth. Uh, so I'd say we're going to be, you know, continue to be cautious uh, and, and on hiring specifically, uh, still do some, but, but not put the pedal down. When it comes to hiring and just retaining employees, how are you keeping people motivated? I know today, this week, was a particularly great week for Lyft shares, but they are down significantly since IPO and down more than some of your industry peers, if you will. Yeah, we have a phenomenal team that's been with us through a lot of the ups and downs of the past couple of years. Uh, the team, uh, you know, at all levels and especially the leadership uh, level is, is battle tested. I've never seen a more cohesive uh, feeling for, for our leadership team than I have over the past few months. So I'm confident uh, we're retaining talent, we're hiring phenomenal talent. Uh, so we're, we're in a good place because uh, people love the mission, love what we're working on, uh, and know that there's a lot of room to grow from here. All right, John Zimmer, president of Lyft. Good to have you back, John. Thank you, Thank you. for joining us. All right, Meta has put its acquisition of the VR company within Unlimited on hold for now. Putting the deal on ice until 2023 or until the court makes a ruling on the FTC's lawsuit to block this transaction, the FTC alleges the deal would help Meta monopolize the VR industry. Redfit are having the best day in months despite reporting earnings below expectations. The stock jumping more than 14% at the close. Unprecedented demand for homes has given real estate, online real estate, a boost in the last few years, but higher rates are slowing that momentum. I want to bring in Redfin CEO Glenn Kelman now. Glenn, feels like so many times we've talked when the stock is down, but today shares are up more than 14%. How do you square that with the housing market taking a turn from the worst, to use your words. 
Well, I think it could have been worse. Analysts were worried that the market had completely crashed, and instead over the past four weeks, it's gotten better. So in June, demand was far worse than almost anyone expected. We had the biggest rate hike since 1987. Economists were thinking that there'd be a 1% decrease in home sales, and instead there was a 9% decrease in home sales. So people freaked. But things got a little better in the last few weeks of July, and that led to some optimism in the housing market. So when you look at the housing market, are you optimistic or are you freaking out a little bit? What are the trends that you see that are most alarming? It changes day to day. So... (laughs) I think on one hand, you've got places like Boise, Salt Lake City, and Denver having more than half their listings drop their price. In Boise, it was 62%. The iBuyers are just ripping the bottom out of the market because we have to price ahead of everyone else to liquidate our inventory. So that has made the correction sharper, but hopefully more short-lived than anyone expected. And on the other side, the Fed was dovish about interest rates uh, last week. And so mortgage rates have really come down. Buyers have come back because home prices are down and now the mortgages are more affordable. So we've seen a slight uptick in demand. I think it's good that we're letting some air out of the balloon in general. It was too crazy in 2020 and 2021. So what direction is this all going in? I mean, do you think a recession is inevitable or are we already in one and somebody just has to call it? I don't think we're already in a recession. I think the housing market is definitely in a jam where it has been very volatile. It has been hard on people trying to buy and sell their home. But the rest of the economy is doing reasonably well. The stock market has recovered. There was a great jobs print today. So it just depends on whether the Fed has to take really aggressive action with inflation. And I was surprised at how devilish they are because I think that inflation trends are deep-seated. And so the Fed is going to have to take another bite at the apple and raise rates later in the year. But we'll see. Hmm. I don't run the Fed. There's a reason. (laughs) Well, you do have a great outlook on the housing market. And what is your outlook for, let's say, second half, half of the year, availability and affordability of homes? What are you expecting? Homes are going to get more affordable. Prices are coming down. Uh, sellers across the board are cutting their prices. The beautiful homes are the ones that are selling right now. The homes that have a funky layout are actually being withdrawn from the market. So the price drops are actually steeper than most people realize because of the selection bias. If we had to sell all the homes that we sold a year ago, prices really would have fallen. So that has led to more buyers coming back to the market. I think that it's going to be a fairly balanced market for the next few months until the Fed makes another move. But if the Fed makes another move, All the bets are off because consumers have been so ridiculously rate sensitive over the past few months. I'm used to that. I've been doing this for 15 years, but I've never seen such rate increases and consumers respond so strongly to those rate increases. So what does this mean for those would-be first-time home buyers that are just trying to get on the property ladder and have not been able to? Yeah, it's a real generational challenge for the fabric of American society. There's a whole bunch of people who are coming of age right now who can't afford the American dream. And the pinch is that they're stuck between rising rents and very high home prices. So we try to tell people to date the rate and marry the house. That just means that you can refinance in a couple of years. But if you can now buy a house that would have sold for $200,000 over asking some crazy bidding war just three months ago and that is now sitting on the market, make an aggressive offer. And that is especially true in the middle of the country. 
And in the coastal markets, we've definitely seen price declines, but things got way out of hand in places like Las Vegas, Phoenix, Boise, Salt Lake. The middle of the country and the Sun Belt was way overpriced, and that is now coming back to earth, and there's going to be a significant correction there. Now, we've seen a number of layoffs at tech companies, Oracle, just the latest one today. Redfin also having some layoffs after you said they, they hired, you hired faster than ever last year. What was the miscalculation? Well, it wasn't just a miscalculation. It was my miscalculation. I was the one who hired into that. It's so hard because you're not gaining as much share as you should. You're turning away thousands of customers every month. You don't have enough real estate agents to serve the demand. You can't solve all the problems that are coming at you left and right. And then the market just drops out. And so we laid off 6% of our workforce and I'm the one accountable for that. I feel so ashamed about it. I was so blue, I still am. But it's what we had to do to run a profitable business. And now I think we feel more optimistic about the future, but we're still running on a nice edge. We're not out of the woods yet. Well, I appreciate you being honest with us about your feelings. And I wonder how it makes you think differently about the future. How, how are you diversifying your business if things get worse? You know, how are you recalculating your approach to hiring in a new environment? Well, every time you go through something like this, you say, never again. Every single time I hire somebody, I'm going to remember I might have to fire that person one day because we don't have enough money. And it's just hard because it's almost like you're on drugs or you've drank too much or you're just out at late some party or something at 3 in the morning and all of a sudden the lights come up and you're like, what have I done? So you just have to be really careful about your hiring. I don't think we're going to diversify the business because... We are going to keep taking share. We sell homes faster for more money. We charge a 1% fee. The basic engine of the business is very good. If we wanted to get out of the business, I don't know what else we would do because there isn't a better business than that. So we just have to focus, execute, keep doing what we're doing, and the rest is going to take care of itself. And, you know, as we look to the second half of the year and, you know, the evolution of the pandemic, maybe another COVID spike, maybe monkeypox gets out of control. We were just talking to, talking to John Zimmer of Lyft about this earlier. How are you taking the unpredictable into account? Well, by its very nature, you can't take that into account. I just think that instead of responding immediately to more demand by hiring, uh, instead of investing in a long-term future, you just have to be more careful and take it day by day. So we recognize that life is complicated, that the world has all these different forces. There's a war in Ukraine, there's inflation, there's all sorts of geopolitical unrest. And we just try to stick to our knitting and do what we do best. And if bad things are gonna happen, you can't just rely on the idea that you're going to have incredible commercial success. You have to have some rudder that guides you through your life where you really believe in what you're doing. So if there's a moral dimension to it, it helps you get through the ups and downs a little bit better. But if it's all about the money, as soon as there ain't no money in it, your whole being collapses. And so I think we just have to remember that we got into this business to make housing more affordable, to make it more fair. And if we do that, we're also going to make a pretty penny for all the people who have invested in us. We want to vindicate you, but the way to do it is to do it right. A look at the moral compass of a CEO. Glenn Kelman, great to have you with us. Uh, I always appreciate, I, I, I believe it's genuine. I hope it's genuine. Uh, and I always appreciate you opening up a little here. Thank you.
Thanks, Emily. Take care. All right. You too. Redfin CEO, Jen Kel- Glenn Kelman. All right, coming up, Amazon has its own home robot. So why is it buying the Roomba maker, iRobot? We'll dig in next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Amazon continues its push into internet-connected home devices. It has agreed to buy iRobot, the company that makes Roombas, those robots that vacuum and wash floors. The deal valued at about $1.7 billion. Here to tell us why, maybe, is Creative Strategies President and Principal Analyst Carolina Milanese. Carolina, great to have you back with us. So why iRobot for Amazon? Because it's about the mass market. Uh, although Amazon has its own robot, is a robot that is uh, over $1,000 uh, and hasn't yet made it to market. And Roomba is already in a lot of homes. Uh, iRobot has the trust of consumers. And so Amazon is acquiring that trust to some extent, uh, the data that they already governed and the opportunity to get to more homes and govern more data. What about Amazon's Astro robot? I mean, they had this big reveal, and we haven't heard a lot about Astro since. I actually had the opportunity to try it uh, for a few days in my own home and it's a very different experience to a Roomba. It's really more about, um, you know, like almost a pet-like robot in your home uh, that takes a little bit more adjusting to, has some limitations as far as where it goes. I think is very early days. There's a lot of opportunity in automation, but from a price point perspective, the Roomba fits a larger market today that will get necessary information to Amazon to make then Astro more successful tomorrow. Well, that was my next question. Do we want a robot pet or does a robot vacuum cleaner just make more sense? It depends what you're doing. I think there are use cases around automation, for instance, for summer homes where you want some, um, you know, continue policing if you want of your home, or if you have older uh, people in your family that you want some help with, uh, either navigating the home. Uh, I think there's that opportunity. My cats and dog went on, got on quite well with it, so there's there's an opportunity there as well as a pet sitter. But I think for a lot of consumers. It will take a little bit of adjusting to. 
Do you think we're going to see more acquisitions like this or in this area from Amazon? I think there's a lot of opportunity in the in the home, and I think generally automation. And if you're thinking about the core asset that comes with Roomba, which is uh, you know knowing the layout of your home, uh, can be applied to other areas, uh, whether it is uh, you know a factory or is an office. So there's. Um, AI and functionalities that Amazon can utilize in other areas than not just our home. And so that I think is where the opportunity is for more acquisitions. All right, Carolina Milanese, Creative Strategies, President and Principal Analyst. Good to have you back, Carolina. Have a great weekend. My guess is that we're past peak inflation um, and that we will see, we will have a recession, yeah, I would say probably, you know, mild, moderate recession, maybe 18 months-ish. Um, and, um, and, and I think we, I think inflation is going to drop uh, rapidly. That's my guess. I don't know, what do you guys think? Yeah, we might be able to announce another factory location later this year. Uh, okay. uh, wait, where, where should we? Okay, where, where should we build it? Okay, we've got, got a lot of Canada's. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I'm, half, I'm half Canadian, so maybe I should, you know. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Shares of Tesla and Twitter both on the move to end the week. And who's at the heart of it? Elon Musk, of course. Thursday, Tesla held its annual shareholder meeting. And behind the scenes, meantime, new court documents reveal Musk countersued Twitter over that $44 billion deal. Our Ed Ludlow back here to break it all down. Ed? So, so much news. I don't know what to make of all that from Elon Musk, but Twitter shares up 3.6%. As you said, court documents from last week unsealed showed that Musk countersued, accusing Twitter of fraud. We'll get into that in a second, but Tesla down almost 7%. Interesting, after the annual meeting, shareholders approved a three-for-one stock split, and then we found out after Friday's close that that split will become effective as of August 25th. So if you're a shareholder of Tesla watching this, by the way, you're going to be a shareholder shareholder of note on August 17th, you'll get two additional shares for everyone you hold, and that stock split is effective August 25th. This is the basis of what Musk is saying. He's saying that Twitter was fraudulent in their representations of the company and its business. There are two kind of key areas. The first is that the number of monetizable daily active users, in other words, the number of users on the platform that they can make ad sales from is around 60 million or so fewer than Twitter has said it was. Twitter denies that, by the way, in a response to that filing. The second part is that in the month of July, Team Musk estimates that around a third of active users on the platform, those actually sending tweets, were spam or bot accounts. And Twitter also denies that and referred the judge to the SEC filings. This is the latest tit for tat. We've seen so many subpoenas of of various parties, including shareholders of both Tesla and Twitter, Musk asking for information, Twitter asking for information. This is going to go on until October 17th, until that trial starts. But we love every twist and turn. Let's look at Elon Musk back on stage. He did make a comment that I found so interesting because he was kind of asked about this idea of key man risk. What happens if you leave Tesla? What happens if a judge makes you own Twitter? He said something very interesting. 
that he understands Twitter's platform and that he feels he can help the company improve. I just thought that sounded like somebody that thinks they might end up owning Twitter and not a lot's been made of it. So something to think on M in the next few weeks. Interesting, okay, thank you, Ed Ludlow. Well, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. One of life's oldest sayings may still hold true when it comes to the newest technologies. At least that's what Reid Hoffman is betting. The tech entrepreneur just sold a collection of AI-generated art-turned NFTs. It's called Untranslatable Words, a series of Solana-based NFTs, or 11 tokenized images generated using OpenAI's Dolly 2 artificial intelligence software. Greylock partner and LinkedIn co-founder Reid Hoffman joins me now for more to discuss. Reid, great to have you back. So it looks like by my calculations, you sold these from you know, you know a few hundred dollars to one sold for about $25,000, all of the money I know going to charity. What did you learn from this process about the potential for this technology in the future? Well, what's really amazing when you get technologies like Dolly is you think initially it's like, oh, is this another place where like everyone has a B plus graphic designer in their pocket? And actually, in fact, it's an amplifier of every human being. If you're an individual with no visual creation abilities, you can still do things like what I was doing and saying, oh, I have this real interest in untranslatable words. What kind of what kind of images could you create that would be part of that? Um, if you're an individual who has a great graphic design, you can amplify. If you're an artist, you can prototype and you can make things. And I thought this was a really great lens for how the modern AI uh, tools and techniques will be amplifiers of human capability. And that amplification is something that we should be playing for, something we should be wanting. Too, too often when the dis discourse around AI is, I'm fearful that the Terminator robots are coming for me or coming for my job. And actually, in fact, I think there's this whole land of amplification and, and the creativity around Dolly and someone even who is visually, essentially, incapable like me uh, <laughs> could actually do these interesting things. So this gets to a more philosophical question about what is art? Because you're basically just typing words into a computer and it's turning it into an image. Why should anyone buy this or think it's valuable? Well, part of it for the NFT part of it is it's the first kind of uh, images coming out of in a commercially available way from OpenAI's Dolly. And so it's kind of like it's a landmark in history. It's also something that, you know, kind of like we put our fingers on and, and put energy into. Because by the way, you don't, to, to generate the pieces you really like, it isn't just I type in, you know, future ci uh, city of uh, in watercolor, which you can do and it can generate something interesting. You generate a bunch of different words. It's like a movie director trying to look for what are the images that might be possible here? And that's part of the reason why I think you'll even see artists doing it. Like the artists use it the way they use a paintbrush or the way they use Adobe Photoshop in order to create something you know, really interesting in terms of, of, of how you're going to, to make something that's a new image. And these are images that are unique. They've, they, they have potentially, like if they've been made before, it's completely accidental. In the most kind of provocative or coolest uh, amplifications, how do you imagine this technology is going to be used in the future? Well, I think if you look at it, everything around us is visual design. The code's visual design. The books are visual design. The, the art, the art uh, on my wall of the uh, indigenous peoples, uh, orca whale, all visual design. So visual design is everywhere in what we do in human society. This becomes an amplifier in all of that within 
kind of visual design. So it'll be it'll be could be the creation of art in things like Storm King and other kinds of interesting places. It could be uh, imaging new products. It could be imaging new things that would be communications uh, for how you 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 do this. And so, for example, you know, today actually is my birthday, and so we decided we're going to release Settlers of Catan. Um, you know, kind of uh, images because I really love this game. You know, and give away some of the NFTs to my friends and other people who play Settlers with me. And and that's the kind of thing you can do. Now this tool is there. Happy birthday, Reed, first of all. Also, Settlers of Catan is one of my favorite games as well. Good to know. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the dangers of AI. You mentioned the Terminator thing. Um, we've also been following this story about the Google engineer who was fired, who claimed that computers have feelings and that you know the public should have more input on these really powerful technologies that, that companies are developing. I actually interviewed him, Blake Lemoyne, and I want you to take a quick listen to what he had to say. We should think about the feeling of the AI and whether or not we should care about it, because it's not asking for much. It just wants us to get consent. Before you experiment on it, it wants you to ask permission. Reed, do you think computers have feelings? Should we get their consent before we run these kinds of experiments? I think the, the answer is almost certainly not yet in terms of having feelings. Could they eventually have feelings? The answer is absolutely possible. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, these are philosophical considerations. It goes back to my Oxford training days. Um, but I think that, that you can already show in these artifacts that the way that they're composing feelings, yes, they are well-trained generators of language through these predictive transformation models and these large language models that OpenAI and Inflection and Adept, all of these, these organizations do. But, um, but I think that the notion of having feelings, because feelings, you'd kind of say, look, there's some strong context to persistence in them. And I think you could demonstrate that that's actually not, even though you could say, do you have a feeling and it generates language, that's not actually all that it takes to have a feeling. So I think that they, I think it's jumping the gun somewhat on that. Though the fact that you just said computers could have feelings someday kind of makes me a little terrified. Should I mean, does that scare you a little? <laughs> well, not necessarily. It's kind of a question. I think what we're doing with, and, and the AI community is engaging a lot of what is known as AI safety. Um, so like, you know, open AI and other organizations, you know, make sure that there's convenings of the researchers and knowing what's the right cases. And so, if, I mean, imagine like when you have the actual Isaac Asimov iRobot, where the robots are trying to help humanity be better, be wiser, be more compassionate, you know, be good companions. Well, those are like, uh, you know, kind of great outcomes that could awesome. And you could imagine that a, that a, that an AI would have feelings there and the feelings actually help it in its partnership and collaboration with humanity. And that's, and those stories aren't told as much through kind of video, you know, uh, movies and TV and so forth, because they're not the drama. You don't have the villain. You don't have the, mm -hmm. like, even when they made iRobot into a film, all of a sudden it was the, it was the homicidal robot, whereas all of the of the Isaac Asimov robots were 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 kind of human amplifying. So, you know, is it concerning vis-a-vis -vis we have to steer it the right way? Absolutely, yes. Is it concerning that it's an inevitable dystopic future that programs like Black Mirror and everything else kind of keep beating the drum on? I think absolutely not.
Hmm. Now, I, I can't let you go without asking you about the market conditions. Obviously, you know, we're seeing, you know, you know, record inflation, public market declines, layoffs at tech companies, big and small. How is this impacting the private markets? What are you seeing and how is it impacting your strategy? Well, I think all companies obviously need to pay attention to the fact that capital markets are tight, especially for growth rounds uh, and for public companies. And so they're all being much, they're, they're using that to be much more focused, you know, in a kind of 10 year bull run. Many companies started too many different projects, hired too many people. So I think you will see those layoffs. Although I think people are still massively investing in tech. So even if, you know, a person gets uh, laid off from, you know, company Y, they can go to company Z. Um, so I actually think the, the overall tech sector will still be very vibrant in hiring, even though there will be layoffs across, um, you know, kind of various different companies. But I think that's totally fine from a viewpoint of creating resilience and focus for how these companies are executing over the next one, two, and three years. And technology is still defining the future of all these industries. So it's still very fundamental to 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 the prosperity and, and the good for society, jobs even, that we're trying to build. All right. Uh, Reed Hoffman, always good to have you here on the show. Thank you. Uh, we could fill a few episodes or maybe seasons of HBO Silicon Valley with this latest turn of events. Um, but thank you for Wayne and LinkedIn co-founder and Greylock partner, Reed Hoffman. Coming up, we're going to talk about others who went down the NFT and crypto rabbit hole and talked it up, but didn't necessarily make it out without looking a little dusty. That's next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. for our crypto report and we are looking at the celebrity crypto trend from Matt Damon's infamous Fortune Favors the Brave ad for the exchange crypto.com to Reese Witherspoon's NFT partnership with the World of Women NFT Collective celebrity crypto touts 
haven't necessarily worked out so well. I want to talk about that with Bloomberg's Emmanuel John Milton, who took a deep dive into all of this for us. So, you know, talk to us about the trends here. It, it, it doesn't necessarily seem to have worked yeah, so to have sort of, celebrities on board. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely hasn't for a lot of people. So I started this story. I was pitching random celebrities that I saw. And then eventually, my editors threw me a bone. They're like, hey, look into this. And when I did, uh, it, it's it's kind of telling. A lot of celebrities have gotten in on the space, and then after the advertisements, my piece kind of looked at how, if you had invested when they touted the uh, the cryptocurrency or the NFT, um, what happened to your value? And it, for all the cases in the article, they went down. So it's been pretty bad for them. We discovered a hilarious tweet to the contrary from the star of Shang-Chi and the legend of the Ten Golden Rings, Simu Liu, um, who, said, who tweeted, when my career ends two months from now, I just hope that people say, oh yeah, I remember Simu. I like that guy. He never tried to sell me an NFT. By the way, he is a hilarious Twitter follow for anyone who's looking for new entertainment. But uh, like, are we going to start to see a trend towards the opposite? You know, celebrities not wanting to touch these new industries? I don't think so. Uh, like, I think that what Cristiano Ronaldo um, just got in with Binance and uh, it, these companies are trying to bring about mass adoption of cryptocurrencies and a really good way to do that is to um, have celebrities that people know and trust to talk to fans and uh, people that they know about it and then uh, if there's money there, the celebrities will go there. And then um, I think the biggest takeaway here is that you just do your own research. Don't just trust a pretty face just because um, they told you that this might be a good investment or to look into it. So are you, are you thinking we're going to continue to see this? Celebrities putting their name, face, likeness, uh, star power behind some of these projects? Mm -hmm. So like Matt Damon, for example, has kind of stayed away. He's faced a pretty big hitting the public from this, but um, other people definitely haven't. Um, like I said, Ronaldo's um, stepping in the space. He's a soccer star for Manchester United, like uh, one of the most popular people on Instagram and in the world. So I don't see this going away anytime soon. Um, as long as there's money in crypto, there will be people who want to advertise for it. All right. Emmanuel John Milton, uh, check out his piece at Bloomberg.com. Thank you, Thank you for, for sharing me. that with us. The concerns about Apple's third quarter and the impact on the company from the economic downturn were not unfounded, at least for nearly everything other than the iPhone. Apple reported total revenue of about $83 billion for its third quarter, right in line with expectations from Wall Street. That represents nearly 3% year-over-year growth compared to 36% annual growth in the same period one year ago. If it wasn't for better than anticipated performance of the iPhone, there probably wouldn't have been any overall revenue growth at all. The company faced several issues in the quarter, ranging from the economy, to supply chain shortages, to foreign exchange headwinds, and the war in Ukraine. All of that appeared throughout its results. In a rarity, Apple missed estimates for the Mac, its wearables home and accessory segment, as well as digital services. While services like TV+, iCloud, and Music certainly grew nicely from last year, wearables in the Mac came in well below where they were a year ago. The iPad also faced a small annual decline. The Mac issue certainly could be explained away by the delays to the M2 MacBook Air and MacBook Pro, while the wearables issue is clearly a little bit more concerning. 
Apple CEO Tim Cook attributed the slowdown to the Apple Watch and AirPods category to macroeconomic issues. In other words, people are choosing wearables as the area that they don't want to spend money on right now. While the iPhone did well, it's still a bit concerning to see the minimal overall growth in wearables issues despite Apple doing far better than many of its peers. I'm Mark Gurman. This is Power On. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Mark's weekly Power On newsletter, Bloomberg.com. And that does it for this Friday edition of Bloomberg Technology. Monday, we've got the FTX U.S. President Brett Harrison with us. We'll talk to him about all things crypto, including their big M&A binge. And don't forget to check out our podcast every day, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Have a wonderful weekend, everyone. This is Bloomberg. to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through? I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.